Hello and welcome to French Football Weekly, the podcast. Uh, my name is Chris. I am your host for this very special podcast, I might add. Uh, why is it special, I hear you ask? Well, one, it's not in our usual time slot. And two, it's because we have got a guest with us. Uh, who is we? I hear you cry. Well, first of all, I shall introduce uh, my regular cohort, Mr. Jeremy Smith. Jez, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am well. I'm well, thank you. Very excited for today because uh, we do have a guest with us, and uh, we're going to cover the pronunciation of his surname shortly. But I've, uh, I've got pronunciation. A... Pronunciation, yeah. Let's get that right for a start. Um, but I have been reliably informed uh, that this is the correct way to do it. So, uh, welcome to our guest, Mr. Angus Torodes. Angus, how are you doing? Very well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for ringing up when it's uh, a perative hour. So I've got a nice bottle of uh, well, bottle of. Uh, wine with me and also in celebration of 25 years since Osea won the double uh, <laughs> in 1996 I have got uh, a dozen snails as well. Osea is perhaps a little bit too north for snails in Burgundy but it's near enough. Fantastic <laughs> we don't get this trusty baguette. We don't get this from all our guests. This this is elite level. Uh, Jez, we need to up our game, seriously. Okay, yeah. um, for, first question then, Angus. Um, for, for anybody who's sleeping under a rock uh, who listens to this podcast, I'm sure anyone who listens to this will know exactly whom you are and what you do. But uh, you're from, from the fine art of commentary, football commentary. Um, the just fine tell in, in my humble opinion, anyway, um, tell the listeners a bit about yourself, uh, sort of, you know, essentially what, what you do, how you got into commentary and, and uh, what sort of what got you into that environment, what got you into that, uh, that love? Well, I've always loved um, sport and I've always loved talking. So I guess the two things went together early on. Uh, I... I've always been a Liverpool supporter, uh, although I don't let that get in my way when I'm commentating which has happened to commentate Liverpool in the past. And it's, uh, it's a real art form to try and stay balanced throughout. Um, so in terms of uh, getting into uh, football, it's probably, you have to go back further than that. And the first thing I did was I got into sport. Um, so I wanted to get into uh, TV. I met somebody at the BBC at one of these exhibitions that you can go to and asked them what's the best thing to do and the first thing they said is don't study journalism which was a little surprising um they said go and do what and i quote a real degree so i went off and did uh, modern european studies with french and that took me to france for the first time when i was at university and i went to Auxerre, and i went to Auxerre in 95 96 which was the right year to go to Auxerre. And uh, I was an English language assistant at a lycée and at a college, loved it. Uh, did all my preparation before I left England. So that meant that I had all this time spare to go and do stuff uh, like food in Burgundy, which is obviously something that has <laughs> stayed with me. Um, and then when I got back, applied to all of the, um, the TV companies, you know, like you usually do. They all wrote back and said, thank you very much for your interest. We'll keep your... Uh, CV on file, which which obviously everybody goes, oh, yeah, all right. So that happened. Three months later, I got a phone call when I was at work, working for a sports hospitality uh, firm near Wembley Stadium. And it was the regional editor saying, hello, is that Angus Turoad? And uh, <laughs> I said, yes. He goes, um, are you still interested in working for us? I said, yes. And he goes, well, we've kept your CV on file. I went, you're kidding. I went, you can actually do that? And he went, oh, yeah, 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 we do. He said, can you come for an interview? So I went for an interview, got the job. Eight months later, transferred to the sports department in Southampton. Uh, ended up working with a really good producer called Mark Schofield, who sent me out uh, on report for a football show called Football First, which didn't last very long. It was on ITV2 when it first started. Um, and it was sort of the rival of Soccer Saturday, which obviously is still with us today. Um, after 18 months, I had pursued Eurosport, and I mean pursued, um, and eventually I ended up getting a job with British Airways in Nice Airport. I was on my period, trial period, I nearly said period to say that, and 
rang up Eurosport, told them that I was on my trial period and that if they didn't take me on in the next nine days, I would be unavailable for six months. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> and he said, well, it's funny you should say that because actually we do. We're just launching a new news channel called Eurosport News. Would you like to come up and have an interview? So you couldn't sort of like stop me fast enough, jumped on the train, came to Paris, interview, got the job. 19 years later, I took redundancy, started up um, my company now, and I've been working on Liga, top 14 football, sorry, top 14 rugby, athletics ever since. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. And um, the plan, always commentary, or you just wanted to be in sports presenting, sports journalism? It's a good question because actually, no, to start with, um, commentary wasn't really what I was aiming at per se. Um, I wanted to get into um, uh, just sport production to start with. And I went for the BBC a couple of times and didn't get in. One of the times was particularly galling because they, we went, I went for a test there and um, I had basically researched the hell out of all of the champions in every sport you can think of. I produced all these things on Word and I was going to show them, to show them, you know, the level of motivation I had. Unfortunately, what happened was, as I took the test that they had, aced it, of course, because I'd really learned my stuff, not just football, but everything, biathlon, uh, all sorts of things, cross-country skiing, badminton, tennis, everything. And um, then got to the interview and uh, they asked me loads of questions. It was all going very well. And then um, they said, how much do you know about sport generally? And I said, well, I, I'd like to think I know quite a lot. I've actually produced all these files of all the champions. And I was going to, I got started to get them out of my bag. And I went, oh, was your bag in here when you did the test? And I went, yeah, but I didn't need it. I didn't use it. And they went, oh dear. And that was it. That was the end of the interview. I virtually got thrown out. Wow. So like it was a, a very inauspicious start, if you like, but it's a, a lesson in um, persistence, my career. So I just didn't give up. I just took another route. And to be honest, with you, I don't regret it now because I, I, I the, the, the move to France where I was able to use my degree in French actually was the making of me. And it was fantastic. I got opportunities over here that and a lot earlier that I would never have got if I'd stayed in England. So, for example, my first ever live game, as in not a report, um, but as in a live game, full game, was Juventus against Bayer Leverkusen in the Champions League, oh. which is quite a baptism. Just a bit. <laughs> in, I think it was 2002, something around there. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's always been like that. So it's basically, you know, the, the opportunities come up and whether you're ready or not for them, you, you just have to go for it. So that's what happened. Absolutely. You'd have got credit for the research, which surely is a No great. idea. To be honest with you, I put that behind me a long time ago. <laughs> I was very, very, very upset at the time. Because for one thing, I didn't like being accused of that sort of treachery, if you like. So, and I, I thought I, I thought that I'd shown a lot of, you know, persistence and determination to get in, and instead I was effectively being accused of having cheated. So, and I must be—it took me an awful long time to get over that. Yeah, I can imagine. It's quite a, quite a confidence knock, isn't it? Really, to to do all that and then be accused it's not of something. confidence. It, it it was my integrity that I felt was attacked. Yeah, yeah. that was the um, that was the thing. Yeah. So anyway. It didn't work, but at the same time, I wouldn't have had the career I've had now had I been successful. So, you know, I've always, I've always thought that whatever, whatever, if you fail at something, there's always a way you can come back from it. And, and also the way you come back from it might actually be better. Yeah, experience and all that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. Talk to me about, about the art of commentary then. I mean, I, I remember sort of as I suppose a lot of young teenage kids do and they get their first games console and, and they're watching games and they're commentating along uh, I did it and I was one of those weird I suppose a lot of kids sort of wanted to be a footballer I was always that kid who went I'd love to commentate on football I, I found it fascinating and I could have named you pretty much every starting level every squad of every team for the top divisions downwards for years until I had to get a proper job and and, and a living unfortunately but um what is what is sort of talking about the actual art of it? Is there a specific 
where you plan, where you prepare for games? And, and is there something that you that you feel sort of separates you from others? Because I guess I guess there's a, a part of it that, that you have to inject your own personality into, into commentary. Definitely. I mean, um, there are always people that um, you admire. And in some senses, to start with, you may even imitate them. For me, it was always Barry Davis. Yep. I just loved his laconic, articulate style of commentary. Uh, it's one of also the reasons why I love John Champion as well, is that he has very much his own style. So whenever you hear John Champion, you know instantly it's him. There's no mistaking John Champion's sound. Um, I love John Motson, of course, as well. <laughs> but I, I, there was just something about Barry Davis's commentary. And I think the, 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 when it really hit me was when England played Argentina in 1986. And he managed to stay on the level, not go mad, because everybody obviously at home was going absolutely crazy because of the, the hand of God. And he managed to keep it on a level playing field. He managed to talk about, and afterwards when Maradona scored the goal of the, well, maybe even of all of the World Cups that we've ever seen. And he said, you have to say that's magnificent. I Afterwards, I was just like, wow, how he managed to take all of the personal hurt and emotion out of it and recognise genius was just, it blew me away. And for me, uh, it was it was one of the greatest pieces of commentary I've ever seen. And it was like, I want to do that. And I got my test when Bayer Leverkusen played Liverpool in the Champions League. And they, I remember they got knocked out at the very last second on away goals. Leverkusen scoring right at the end in a match where it had literally gone from one side to the other all the way through. Long time ago now, back in the noughties. And I was going crazy in terms of bigging up by Leverkusen. And afterwards, it finished. And I went through the end. And, and I said, are we off air yet? And he looked, nothing. Listen, are we off air yet? What do you mean? Are we off air yet? Yes, we are. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> and I've been storing it up through the whole game. We would never have known it through the game because I was going absolutely bonkers for Leverkusen. They went on to reach the final, I believe, that year as well, Leverkusen. And the Zidane goal. Yeah, the, the Real Madrid game, yeah. And, but that was commentary. And it was funny because um, you often have commentators accused of bias during their commentary. And I don't buy it because commentators want to keep their job. And if they start being really biased in terms of one side or another, then you end up not working because you've got to, you've got to show a journalistic integrity, even when it's your team. It's why I never talk about Liverpool on Twitter or anything like that. Usually this is like almost the first time I've ever admitted in my professional capacity that I follow Liverpool. Um, and but that's the job, and I love I love that part where you have to find the the middle road between two two teams. You have to reflect the action, you have to reflect the emotion, and you have to reflect the emotion because you mustn't re you mustn't forget that one side of the fans are going crazy with joy, and the other half are going nuts with frustration and anger and and you've got to find a way to speak to both of them yeah. you mentioned barry davis in commentating on an england match and i think yeah. i think a lot of people would agree that a lot of commentary now is becoming more and more partisan in the sense that um not commentary but coverage so like on bt sport if an english team is playing in the champions league there's there's no attempt to hide that um, you know, they prefer the English team to win, possibly, you know, to the point that maybe they they might err on sort of controversial decisions and, and you know, very much sort of lean towards the English club's point of view. Do you, do you feel that even for internationals, if England are playing or if an English team is playing, the best commentator would still manage to keep a completely unbiased view, even if you're sort of catering to an English audience. I was going to say, well, that, that's the key, isn't it? Is, well, who's your audience? I mean, my audience, I'm the world feed commentator. So that means I've got to keep it, you know, down the middle all the way because you're not commentating to a UK audience. 
Um, so for BT Sport, obviously they are going to lean towards the English size. Um, so that, and especially if it's the uh, the pundits. I mean, the pundits are not journalists. So you know, and they and they are there to give their opinions. Yeah. So I mean, you know, and their opinions are always going to wind somebody up. So. I, I don't have so much of a, a problem with that. I think, actually, to be honest with you, when you when you hear the likes of Gary Neville and um, Jamie Carragher speaking, they're actually quite balanced, even when they're talking about the uh, the other divide, if you like, when Neville's talking about Liverpool and when Carragher's talking about Man United. I think they actually do a pretty good job at remaining relatively, um, maybe not unbiased, but at least they see... They see, I mean, I've heard Gary Neville talking about Liverpool, saying how great they're playing, as well as saying when they're not very good. And he does the same thing with Man United. Maybe he's even more, he's, he's even firmer on Manchester United because it's his team. Um, I don't have a problem with that per se, but I think as a commentator, uh, the commentator is not there, I think, to give his opinions. A commentator is there to talk about the action. I think Clive Tilsley said it really well the other day. Is it's not about him. It's not about us. We are just a conduit for what's happening in front of us. So it should never really be about us. Um, and and, and I, I sometimes wonder whether I should put photos of me when I'm on site, because I'm thinking, does that mean I'm making this about me? But my, and then my idea of that is because it's not that it's about me, but when I was a child, for example, I loved the thought that the commentator was there mm. because I wasn't. And I wanted the commentator to be there and to be telling me exactly what happens, even the stuff that's not on the screen. And that's the great thing about being on site is you can read the game infinitely easier because you can see these little changes instantly. When you're, when you're doing it off the tube, which um, some of the time we do now, you can't necessarily make a judgment straight away because it might just be a one-off. You Because you can only see your little square of um, pitch. And when you're at the, obviously at the, the stadium, you can see the whole pitch. So instantly you can see when somebody moves, you can see a formation change just like that. You can see what the, uh, the coach is doing as well, directing uh, the traffic, if you like. Uh, and of course, with no crowd, you can do that even better because <laughs> literally everything they're saying, like Nico Kovac, is probably more interesting to listen to during the game than I am, quite frankly. <laughs> that that leads me to um, a really perfectly laid out question, actually, because we're recording this in, in May, 20th of May, uh, 2021. And obviously we've, we've been through the, the, the COVID era, the, the pandemic period. How has that changed your sort of take on, on how you've, how you've done commentary? Because I know that a lot of the games that I've certainly listened to your excellent commentary work um, during during league and coverage. A lot of the games you do on your own, so you, you may not have a co-coms. That's and how, right. how is that, how's that been different? And especially how's that been different in COVID times when you say when you've had to commentate from home or, you know, from, as you say, TV coverage, because it, it must be such a strange experience. And at the same time, how is it different when you are in the stadiums and there is such a limited amount of people in and no crowd? Well, I've not had to commentate from home yet. So that's, um, it's always, it, we've, we've done it from the studio when we've had to. Um, the difference for me is, hmm, it's, a, it's a curious one that, because sometimes it allows me to stay silent for longer. If I can hear something on the pitch that's interesting, I will stay silent so you can hear it. And that's obviously not something you could do when there was a crowd because you wouldn't be able to hear it. At the same time, uh, when there is a crowd, you can stay silent for longer and just let the crowd noise come across. Because I, I must admit, when there's a really good crowd noise, I sometimes like to just not say anything for a while and let the crowd really fill people's ears and, their, and the television at home and then pick it back up again when something actually happens. Um, so I would say that that's been one of the things is I've been trying to listen to the coaches when they're talking and then when I if, I, if I understand what they're saying, I will then relay that to the viewer at home. Because obviously on the English language um, service, people at home won't necessarily understand the French. So it's part of my job, I think, to actually tell them what's going on. Uh, of course, with Nico Kovac, 
that gets uh, a little more difficult because he speaks in English, French, not French. He doesn't do French. That's the one thing. English, Spanish and German. So it's um, when he goes into certain languages, I don't know what he's saying. I, I pick up a little bit of the German, but not very much because I, I did used to commentate Bundesliga. But my German is very much sort of like being able to book myself into a hotel and order a, a beer in a in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I noticed Kovac was uh, was definitely at it again last night in the cup final, which we'll we'll touch on in a minute. Um, Jez, over to you. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, the other obviously the, the other sort of major change or issue that everyone talks about in football the last year or two is VAR. Does that affect the commentator's job in any way? <laughs> yes, it <laughs> certainly does. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that because I commentate football and rugby I can I get a direct um, comparison between the way the TMO works in rugby and VAR works in football and I think football has a long way to go to catch up with rugby in terms of how they use technology um gosh there's so many there's so many levels uh, <laughs> um so the biggest problem I have as a commentator, let's forget all the stuff about VAR in terms of the contentious decisions. That's not really my job as such. But what the problem in football is, is you don't know what's going on. You will literally, everybody will stop. And suddenly the referee's talking to the players, players are talking to the referee. And you've got, you actually don't know that VAR is actually coming. As whereas in rugby, you instantly know because the you hit the refs are mic'd up, and they start talking to the TMO, and you hear it. So you instantly know what's going on. And on top of that, you get expl explanations from rugby uh, referees all the time. So you always know where they are in the analysis. As well as in football, you literally have no idea. You just don't know. I mean, there's no sound. Nobody knows anything. So sometimes you're actually guessing why they've gone to VAR. Um, so that actually creates quite a problem. Um, then, of course, there's the technical problem of that we then, because on, um, uh, on the League and Highlight Show, we take the commentary that we've actually commentated and then it's edited down. So VAR, you can imagine if you've got to do a, a five-minute to edit or a seven minute edit and you've got VAR that lasts for three minutes and you and the VARs are always the important contentious bit so you've got to have them in in some way um then editing them is a real problem but that's our that's our problem that's not the football fans problem but for me the real problem when you're commentating is trying to interpret what you're seeing and you don't often get that until uh you get a replay and then you're working out what the the issue is sometimes particularly with handball that can be very contentious yeah which i think it's fair to say none of us really know what handball even is anymore basically even as a commentator sometimes you 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 look at it and and, and you're just like i don't know what to say about that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, think, I think we all feel that at times um, yeah. following whatever club you follow it's just yes yeah, a nightmare especially in different leagues um who's your in terms of sort of from a french football perspective um, whose sort of teams or even stadiums do you enjoy watching most and, and why? Is there a specific sort of team or, or, uh, or area you like to be in the most? Um, well, uh, it, being on site is definitely the best thing about my job. There's no doubt about that. So for the weekend, I was in Monaco uh, at the Stade Louis II um, uh, for a game that was... There's been some weird games this season and that was one of them. Monaco in complete control and then give a goal away to uh Ren and then all of a sudden they're hanging on for their dear lives at the end um that was that's also one of the stranger stadiums as well because it, it's like walking into a theater when you're outside it doesn't look like a stadium from you know it's more like sort of a theater stroke railway station kind of entrance it's it's, it's very very odd um but I love that because you don't always see that when you are just commentating off tube um going to uh, the alliance uh, uh riviera um the other day as well completely different stadium the absolute modern kind of stadium in the the var valley just outside of nice and when 
that's a it's a fabulous stadium but unfortunately those two stadiums have both been empty so it's, and this is the problem is that i'm looking forward to going again when there's actually people there um but we also go to the little stadiums as well i do coupe de france um so i went to um annecy last week or was it was it last week i get I, the weeks get wrapped up now uh, i think it was last week yes um to do rumi valier against monaco very different type of stadium very intimate very small um the same as um uh G- gfc um ajaxio as well in which is one of the it's a brilliant stadium it looks like it was built by students it, it, it's just like it's completely breeze block t- together um but you know, it, it really reflects the, the place where it is. And there's some there's some amazing stadia in uh, in France and indeed in Germany. I've been to a number of them in Germany as well. But going to the stadia is definitely where I want to be. It's um, it's you, you pick up things when you're on site that make the production yours that you don't just get when you're looking on the Internet. If you're looking on the Internet, that means probably 300 people have also seen what you've seen. Um, it's a little bit different, uh, even particularly now, because now that uh, translation devices are so good, even when it's in French, you know that other people are going to be able to read it effectively because the French is translated into the English. But when you go there, so for example, when I was in Ajaxio, I, I ended up bumping into the local historian who gave me the, a, an absolute biscuit, as the French say, which is basically a nugget of information, which was the floodlights are made from old gas pipes. <laughs> literally gas pipes and I, to start with I'm like what you mean they're powered by gas you're kidding are you no 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 no. he goes it's just that they they, they had old pipes lying around and they don't you know put them in the ground and then put the electricity through them floodlights on the top I'm like wow you know that's just a great piece of information yeah you don't get that at Old Trafford do you <laughs> definitely not uh Jez back over to you um you talked about the the Monaco Stadium and sort of that's one of the kind of, I feel like, you know, apart from Dijon cutting the mustard, one of the sort of standard jokes that's often used as a kind of within the French football community as well, but certainly outside is, you know, always, you know, for example, well, during COVID, will Monaco even notice the difference, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, Chris and I are sort of very attached to French football and, and, uh, look to defend it as much as possible. Um, where where do you place it? Not necessarily purely in terms of, of the quality of the football, but among the the top leagues. Like, what what do you think has going it has going for it? What would you like to see? Maybe where they need a bit of room for improvement, that kind of thing. Well, it calls itself the League of Talents, which, of course, um, shows you where they think the strength of the league lies. It's a, it's a great place. Considering it's a place where an awful lot of youth talent comes through, it's amazing that it's actually part of the top five leagues in Europe. It shows you the quality of the... And, and it shows you the, as well that uh, a lot of the other leagues, they're all, they all look at France for the next big thing. Um, I would like the French league to actually hold on to some of its talents sometimes, I've got to say. Um, but you see, the thing is money talks and that's the way it is. I mean, a lot of the clubs in, in France, they're small clubs. They come from small towns. They're not big catchment areas. I mean, Reims, Metz, um, Angers, Auxerre, classic example. I mean, just a few thousand people live there. When they filled the stadium, it was it was there were more people in the stadium than actually lived in the town when I was there. So it shows you um, that so they, they they depend on this conveyor belt of talent to keep their clubs alive. I mean, it's why the youth systems in France are so good. Um, is is that very very is that is that entirely? But I think there's more to French football than that. I think that. I love the fact that French football has now left that M.A. Jacquet era where defence was very much, you know, you did you defended first and foremost. And then if you managed to get forward, OK. Now a lot more teams in France actually attack. Um, they actually they build on this ethos of not just possession, but also what you do with that possession, not just pass around in the midfield and wait for a gap. They actually try and force their way through now. 
I love watching Monaco, for example. I mean, I think that I think what Nico Kovac has done there is fantastic with the youth revolution, bringing through some players, and they play football. I mean, I know they they are capable of also the counter attack, but they do it quite a lot, which means that there is always something to commentate in a Monaco game. I mean, their form in twenty twenty one has been absolutely sensational. It's just a shame that their defense in the first half of the campaign wasn't quite there. Otherwise, I think they would be with a very realistic chance of winning the title, not just an outside chance. But there are others as well. Brest are, I mean, Brest are a breath of fresh air. I mean, completely, they just go for it. And as a result, they've wound up getting some bit of a hiding sometimes because they defence has not been the most important thing, but they're one of the most entertaining sides to watch. I always used to look on it, and if I had a Brest match, you're like, great. I know I'm going to get a good match this weekend. There's going to be there's going to be attacking. It might not be Brest always scoring, but you know there's going to be goals. So I think that um, the action is actually very good to watch. I think that uh, the, the problem with a lot of people who are outside of French football is that they there is an awful lot of snobbism, snobby nature about French football because of the fact that you had that great generation all leave, go to the Premier League, um, sometimes go to to Spain as well, but mainly the Premier League. And because of all of this money poured into the Premier League and they got all the best players, there's a very snooty attitude to other leagues. And Germany even suffers from that, even though, you know, Germany is another great league to watch. I mean, you know, Germany for a long time was one of the few leagues that could guarantee you three games, three, three goals a game. You know, they, it, was, it was that attacking. Um, France is now doing that the last four weeks or um in Liga, there's been goals everywhere yeah so and it's it's entertaining to watch and i think that it's it's been entertaining to watch even though there's been no crowd which i was surprised at because i thought with no crowd it was going to be a little bit mm. but actually the the games have just carried on the same way in terms of the action it's just that there is no longer really what you would say a discernible home advantage yeah, yeah, because the atmosphere is, is so big in French football, isn't it? And that really comes across on, on the coverage. Um, you'd be happy to know both Jez and I are not glory supporters. Jez is, follows Mets and I follow Lorient. So we're, we're both um, in the, the lower spectrum. Well, not in Jez's case. Well, you're, you're having a very exciting end to the season then if you're a Lorient supporter. Yeah, exciting is one word. Um, damn right nervous is probably a better word. But yeah. It's, it's well, my, my team is Auxerre. So trust me, you're, you're having a much better season than we are. We, yeah, we, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Definitely... just missed out on the playoffs so I mean uh and we, yeah. were in, we were in the playoffs for a large part of the season yeah I'll give you that one I'll give you that one for yeah. sure we um we're recording the day after the Coupe de France final uh PSG running out two new winners over Monaco and you mentioned you know it's, it's almost a shame that Monaco season is going to potentially uh, at time of recording end without silverware and you know they'll be remembered for for what they have done but what do you what do you make of um the season as a whole, because we have got a title race. A lot of people from the outside looking in just assume PSG win the league every year. And suddenly people are taking notice and going, oh, actually, there's there's a new team on the block in, in Lille. We've seen a, a brilliant season from them. We've mentioned Monaco. Lyon have sort of flirted in and out. They've been in and around, but they've been up there. We've seen amazing season from, from Lens, who've been promoted and are right up in the table. It's been fun. What what have you? What did you make of firstly last night's cup final and the season as a whole? Has it has it been sort of one of the, the more memorable seasons, even excluding the the COVID situation? Is it has it been one to remember for you? Well, um, to go back to what you said about Monaco, um, I actually don't think whatever happens, it's been a it will be a disappointment, even if they don't um, even if they don't get into the Champions League. Because, I mean, they, they, the goal was not Champions League at the beginning of the season. And it certainly wasn't win the title. And yet they're going into the final day of the campaign. I know that this will be probably broadcast on the podcast after the weekend. But to go into the final weekend with even a slim chance of winning the title, I think shows just how much progress Monaco have made. I was disappointed with them last night. I've got to be honest. I thought they were very tentative. I thought for the first time, maybe their youth, particularly in midfield, showed up. And, of course, at the back. Um, I feel sorry for Axel de Sassi, because obviously um, Nico Kovac showed faith in him after the weekend when he scored an own goal. And then he had a howler of a moment last night. 
where you do not want to look upfield and not know where the ball is when you've got Kylian Mbappe in front of you. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't shatter his um, confidence too much because I think he's brilliant. He, he was one of the main reasons why Rance had the tightest defence last season. And that was no small thing. A team like Rance doing that, not just for part of the season, but the whole season. Um, I thought that Chumaini and Fofana last night um, were slightly bullied by Paris Saint-Germain's midfield, but they were outnumbered in midfield as well. When I saw the start sheets, I went, hmm, three against two. That's going to be interesting. Um, and I thought Paris Saint-Germain did a great job of marking Folland and Ben Yedder out of the game. I mean, you barely noticed them. For Folland, it's a bit weird because he's actually had two or three games now where it's he's kind of dropped off just at the point where he's been brought back into the Germany fold. Yeah. So it's a little unfortunate for him because he's been sensational for this season. I mean, he, he it, it reminded me of when I used to commentate him in the Bundesliga. And he was alongside Senad Abisevic and particularly Roberto Firmino uh, when they were at um, Hoffenheim. They were a joy to watch. Um, and I hadn't seen him being that much of a joy to watch until now. And I thought that his form has really come back. I was banging on earlier in the season how he ought to be back in the German squad, um, which he obviously, uh, Jogi Löw, resisted, but obviously heard me in the end. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but anyway, that's another conversation. But I, I think that Monaco, if they manage to keep, and this is always the trouble with French teams, if they manage to keep their stars, I think the title is definitely on for next season. But if the trouble is you've got to have players who believe in the system. And it's whether or not, do they believe in Nico Kovac? Will Nico Kovac take them? Or more realistically as well it's not just that they might believe in Kovac completely but if huge money comes in for them have they got the where it all to say no I'm good here yeah I can take the money later the same with Lille has already been heavily linked with Chelsea I think so. yeah Chiromeni has been linked with Chelsea I think already so. yeah but I mean there's a lot of a lot of I mean every year we go through this about this exactly, time don't we yeah. so I mean some of it some of it is true some of it isn't but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, like I say, that's why I say France is almost like it's the biggest shopping window in world football, you know, and everybody's watching. We're yeah. seeing the likes of, um, obviously, Sumare is, is, is headed for Leicester from Lille, and, and it would be almost a bit of a shame, wouldn't it, if that, if that Lille side does go on to, to win the title this weekend, and, and there's arguably five or six of their main stars, albeit suggest it looks like a financial situation that they probably need to sell on but it would be a bit of a shame to see those players go and then Lille to drift away particularly if, if Gaultier leaves as well well this is the thing with Lille as well because I mean it's what happened to them last time I mean let's um, you know Lille are on the verge of winning this this title in some senses we shouldn't really be surprised um, because a couple of seasons ago they were also the main challengers for Paris Saint-Germain and then of course they were stripped you know, Nicholas Pepe left, went to Arsenal, which was a shame for him because he really struggled when he went to England for a while. And he's now beginning, I think, to find his feet. Um, and they, 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 they keep bringing in, they're fortunate, they, they always manage to find replacements. And of course, they brought in Jonathan David, who was supposed to be the big replacement this season. But actually, Burak Yilmaz turned out to be the, the signing of the season. So... You know, it's not just the sporting director that you have to watch. It is Gautier as well. I mean, will he go to Nice? I mean, mm. you know, it would seem a strange move for me to go to Nice, other than the fact that, you know, the project there is long-term. Maybe he's being promised that he won't lose players. Because at Lille, in the summer, again, like you say, Samari will be off. How many others will also be off? Yeah. Maybe maybe Barrick won't leave, though, because being the age he is, maybe he has a chance of actually staying and then taking them into the Champions League. Yeah. You feel like with Galtier, Campos already gone, um, looks like Menon, for example, Botman. I just feel like too many of that team are going to be sort of, you know, the heart of the whole, almost the whole club is going to be ripped out. Well, Menon, I mean, Men what a season Menon's had. I mean, we talk yeah. about Burak Yilmaz and maybe he will be the player of the season. And I wouldn't say that he doesn't deserve it because he has, he has led from led that team straight away. 
You know, I mean, you know, he, it's no wonder they call him the king. I mean, because he, there's such reverence already for him in Lille. I mean, even the, the likes of Ikone, they all look at him, you know, and they've been there for the last few years. You think They would think that they're sort of like the big deal in the team, but they all love Burak Yilmaz. But Menor, I mean, Menor, 20-odd clean sheets, I think it is, isn't it, for him this season? I mean, he's, it's, there hasn't been, it hasn't been 20 clean sheets in Ligue 1 for, for a little while. He's leading the top five leagues as well with that many clean sheets. Um, but I think a lot of the clean sheets as well have also been because of how good Botman and Jose Font have been in front of him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. um, I think a lot of clean sheets are because of great saves, but they're also because of great defence. Yeah. So, and, you know, Zeki Celic playing as well. It, it, they, they, they are just solid. I mean, you know, they're just solid. Yeah. So yeah. do you think they'll they'll do it? Oh God. <laughs> it depends on what week it is. Because <laughs> you know, when they lost against Neem, I mean you were just like, come on, guys, you've lost against Neem. How can you and, and, and obviously everybody would have gone, well, if they're gonna lose against Neem, then they can't be trusted until the end of the season. But then of course they backed it up with what they did against Paris Saint-Germain. You're like, okay, right. So basically what you need is big teams until the rest of the season rest of the year but they have actually solidified up as well against the smaller teams in the last couple of weeks as well um, nothing spectacular but they're getting the job done they were told they needed four points with two games to go and they obviously believe that because they only drew at the weekend but I but think they're that better they're away from home this season as well they've been yeah. superb away from home this season um, but a number of teams have been really good away from home this season and again I think that's because the home crowd has levelled up any kind of advantage that a home team can have. And um, Lille have almost been more impressive away than they have at home this season. And so I think it's quite good that their last game is away from home because it makes me believe more that they can do it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we yeah both... I, think, I think they will do it. I think that um, I think that that 10 year gap will will finish. I th yeah, the Paris Saint-Germain are coming off the euphoria of the Coupe de France uh, final, which is difficult to come down afterwards when you when you played and they some people say oh they played their final last week well they really have played a final and only a few days before so i think that i think that both teams will win same yeah i think i think they'll both win and uh and Lille will take the title but obviously it's a guess i mean who who actually knows particularly yeah. in this season. And that is why the run into this league 1 season has been nothing short of sensational. Yeah. Lyon were in the, uh, were in, in there a few weeks ago. Yeah, Monaco yeah. were there until obviously Lyon beat them and then that uh, ended their challenge. And then <laughs> they came back in again, but I don't think anybody really believes that Monaco are going to win the title. No. The difference is too great even if they do manage to get on the same amount of uh, points as the teams above them. Yeah, that's I love it the fact there's still three teams in it. And that's not to mention the the six way sort of split of the relegation playoff place as well. I mean, that's also just completely nuts. Obviously. Oh yeah, Nantes. I mean, Nantes have just been crazy. Antoine Quambore. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I didn't think he was going to do quite that job when he came in. No, I think Jez said the same. <laughs> we were a bit skeptical. You need an instant reaction. Okay, he took a couple of games to get them going, but since then. But the amazing thing I found is that despite all of these wins, and the same can be said for L'Oreal. They're still in trouble, even after those wins, which is amazing. Yep. Usually when you get those amounts of wins, it shoots you up the table and you're out of trouble. Yep. But there's been an awful lot of competition at the bottom. And suddenly Bordeaux, Strasbourg are also not mathematically safe. Although I think those on 42 points will probably be OK. Yeah, should be fine. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is probably because I, co I can't think that I think Bordeaux is, is on 42. I can't yep. believe that everybody believe no, them is going to lose or is going to win and they will lose. And then they'll be in the, the in the relegation playoff spot. But <laughs> who knows? Yeah, with teams playing no. each other as well. Is it? Is it? What I, for memory now? Is it? Um, Strasbourg, Gloria, Strasbourg, Gloria, and, and Bordeaux have got uh, yeah. who? Uh, Brest PSG and who? Brest oh, we'll PSG. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many teams playing each other. It's it is bonkers. Um, but uh, I know, Jess, you probably want to. Um, talk a little bit of uh, a bit of France as well um, for those who don't know or didn't listen to last week's podcast shame on you but uh, Jez made a bold prediction at the end of our podcast last week and he said a certain 
a certain French striker might be recalled to a national team for the Euros. Uh, so, Jez, I'll, I'll let you um, I'll let you ask whatever you whatever you choose to Angus about the Euros in France. Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously that that certain striker is is Benzema. Um, I mean, look, it, I guess it depends on your feet. Unfortunately, it often sort of gets reduced to what your feelings are for Benzema and what your feelings are about Giroud. Um, but I mean, do you generally think this is the right call? It's so difficult to boil it down to a question because it's such a multi-layered issue, I think. I can't help thinking that part of this came about because of what's going on in Germany, because they're in the same group and Muller is coming back, Hummels is coming back um, and Folland is coming back. So you've got two really big attacking talents coming back into the Germany side. And I mean, it may have nothing to do with it, but it's a little bit of a coincidence that at that point, when that, those stories started circulating, so too did the real clamour for Karim Benzema to come back. And I know that Lekeep were talking about this earlier in the year, and it's something that has been coming. It's almost been like sort of like multinational um, negotiations, isn't it? The way that it's come about with approaching Benzema... Um, Didier Deschamps talking with Noah Legret uh, about whether or not it's actually on the cards. Um, whether I think it's the right move or not, um, I think that in this um, uh, this environment, uh, maybe both sides felt they needed weapons of mass destruction, so they decided to to bring in the big guns. I think Germany desperately needed to bring back their um, big guns because they frankly have not been great for a while. Um, and Muller has been absolutely sensational um, for Bayern Munich, particularly with setting up goals. So I think he slots into that German team very, very easily uh, from that point of view. In terms of France, uh, everybody's talking about Giroud. Um, I think as well we should be talking about Wissam Ben Yedda because he has now, he's now had two back-to-back sensational season scoring only missed out on uh, the golden boot last season because he needed more games to uh, score his goals and even killing Mbappe for that was a bit unfair um but when you look at the um the the the, the, the attacking line now of France it's scary they've got so many options and I think that um, I think it's good from a tactical point of view what concerns me is that what went on with his court case is not finished. And I can't quite put those things together, um, whether or not you should bring back a player who is going to court because of something that was an accusation that is still there about what he did to a teammate. Um, so I, maybe because it's now a few years afterwards, you don't have the same generation in the dressing room, in the dressing room, in the changing room anymore. So they wouldn't be maybe affected by it so much. All they would see is a guy who consistently performs for Real Madrid at the highest level. Uh, I mean, that's the way Kylian Mbappe seems to be looking at it um, with his tweets over the last couple of days regarding it. Um, so, yeah, I don't honestly know how it's going to work out nobody does I mean we're, we're not in we're not there but I think that um I think now if they get any injuries in the attacking line it won't matter anymore because there's just so many options that they can bring in I, I read that they say it makes them the overwhelming favorite for the title I don't buy that because it I, I don't think uh, just because you've got the best players makes you the best team and let's not forget France won the World Cup without Benzema quite well I mean, they were comfortably the best side in Russia and deserved the title, I, I think, absolutely. Um, so I think this is more a benefit for Benzema than perhaps it is for France. It, it resurrects his international career. Yeah, I think for me, I think under Deschamps, I don't, I don't think the same is going to happen. But everything you say about them now being overwhelming favourites, it just, for me, it sort of brings really bad flashbacks to 2002 and they had like the top scorer of Italy, England and France in the team and didn't even score a goal. No. Um, but yeah, I, I just... In terms of like a great attacking lineups, my concern, and I think that was 
by all accounts, that's kind of how Deschamps feels, and certainly after the the March internationals, is that you've obviously got Mbappe, who's just on fire. Griezmann is doing well, but to an extent, his confidence is a little bit shot after a couple of years at Barca. Giroud's mm. obviously not getting games. And then I think even the backups, Martial, who's injured, Ben Yedder, even Lacazette previously, none of them really stepped up yet for France. And you could say, well, they didn't really get enough chances. But I think Ben Yedder maybe has only got one or two goals. And that's my slight concern. And that's why I understand Benzema coming in. But I... My other sort of larger concern is the kind of thing I've moaned at a lot before. And as you said, France were the best team in, in Russia. They, you know, they're through to the Nations League semi-finals. They always step it up. And yet so often France fans still aren't happy. And all they want is this amazing champagne football. And I just I'm not sure that's always possible in international football anymore. And my concern is that if you've got Benzema and Mbappe up front. Griezmann is going to, who's already had to do all the running for Messi for the last two years, is now going to have to do all the running for a couple of other players in terms of defensive shifts. Whereas before Giroud did that as well. And I worry that a few fans are kind, you know, be careful what you wish for. That you know they've now got what they want, but it won't necessarily work out the way they think it's going to. Well, it's about finding the right tactics, isn't it? In in some senses, how do you, how do you how do you feed Benzema and Mbappe together? Um, and the other problem is, of course, is because they haven't played together, you don't know quite yet how they will gel together. So this is one of the things about Giroud. I mean, despite his faults, I mean, I go tear my hair out sometimes with Giroud. Everybody is I, I, so often I see him miss a hatful of chances. Then he scores with a penalty, and he's a hero. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's fine, but and they say, oh, we wouldn't have won without him. I'm like, yeah, you would have won a lot earlier had he put away some of the chances that came his way. Um, and it wouldn't have been quite so nerve-wracking at the end. But at the same time, it's like, it's like you say, it's sort of the Emil Heskey argument, isn't it? Is that what else he brings to the team? And he brings an aerial threat. He holds the ball up. He brings others into play. And as you say, he is the first line of defence. But I think that um, the way French football is moving now, you're getting a lot more of the high press that uh, happens in French football now. Monaco, definitely. I mean, Monaco are obsessed with it. Um, and Ben Yedder, for me, is absolutely astonishing at that. He literally just runs and runs and runs and he gives himself in for the team. And I love that about him, is that even though he's the big scoring star, he, he will be chasing after the goalkeeper, the defenders, you know, and you can see the, the system coming in. And I would hope that with France, that they are starting to get that as well. And that when they go to, um, where they go to, it's not in one place anymore, is it? It's, uh, Don't it, think any of us know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. They've got two matches effectively away from home. So they're playing Germany yes. in Germany and I think Hungary Munich. in Hungary. Yeah, that's yeah. right, in Hungary in Budapest. Um, yes. Um, so, but I mean, I, I'm not sure that makes an awful lot of difference because those, they're not that far apart. I mean, it's not the, it's, it's the same thing as if you, you know, you have the World Cup in Germany and you've got one, one, you've got teams in the north, teams in the south, and then they have to start traveling around as well with the um the knockouts. They're not they're not that far away, Munich and uh, Budapest from each other. It's uh, it's it's no worse. I mean, I think Paris from Marseille is further away. I'm than, thinking uh, more in terms of the crowds. I don't know, I mean, I don't know what numbers are allowed, but well, we still really don't know what's going on with that, do we? I mean, uh, they're starting to get crowds back in. In England now, uh, unfortunately, we won't get them in Liga because of the curfew. We might they might be saying now that crowds of a thousand are allowed into outside sporting events, but unfortunately, the curfew is still there, which means the nine o'clock kickoffs are too late, so still no crowds. Um, but uh, I, I think it's fascinating. I think that maybe as well it could work for them with Karim Benzema because rather than just stick with what they had. They've brought in some new blood, which has changed the, the vibrancy a little bit. So maybe you will see um, them avoid what happened in 2002. Let's not forget they won the European Championships in 2000 before they did that. So I think the odds are still good for, um, for France. I think they've still got a squad which is easily capable of winning it. And they showed in Russia that they can play like a team. Uh, the thing that worries me is, well, maybe this is also why Benzema has been brought in. Is the, if, if, if Mbappe is injured, 
in some way. You need somebody who's a talisman. And I think you can probably say that Benzema definitely has that kind of aura around him, that if Mbappe wasn't there and he was up front, there would still be the confidence that they can still win it because of what he brings in terms of tactics and performance. Yeah. yeah. That's in terms of that, do you think there's any, there could be an issue of egos? Because Giroud, I don't, you know, looks fantastic. But footballing-wise, I don't think, you know, the way he plays and sacrifices himself for the team, I don't think there's an ego there. Griezmann, again, the way he plays, I don't think there is either. Do you think there could be a sort of Benzema and Mbappe, we want to be the number one? I guess Benzema's used to playing with Ronaldo. And Well, it was interesting that Mbappe immediately came out with that tweet and 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 said, you know, um, Mbappe times Benzema, which suggests to me that he fully intends... He, he, may, he maybe even thinks that because uh, there's a chance for him to set up goals as well as score them. I mean, Mbappe sets up goals. He doesn't just score them. So he, get, he, he always gives me the impression that he's not a very selfish player. He, he, he seems to enjoy setting up teammates. And let's face it, he's playing in a team in Paris Saint-Germain where egos must be at a premium. I can't imagine it's worse in the French national side. True. <laughs> yeah, just need to bring back the, the Ben Arthurs of this world and, and and watch it all blow up in front of you. Yeah, well, that's that's a very fair point. Mm. It's going to be um, definitely going to be an interesting Euros. Um, I wanted to ask you just a couple of quick fire questions uh, to finish off. Um, and I'll try and come up with these on the hip. So uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Favourite player to watch? in your Favourite player to watch? Yeah. Chouamani. Really? Yeah. Never. Th- I could have picked you 100 players. I wouldn't have picked him. I, I just love the way... Uh, to be fair, I can I have two? Because it's got to be Chouamani and Fafana. Because they're a double act. Oh, we, we can allow that, yeah. You know, it's like, for, for me, I always say that there are no great centre-backs. There are great centre-back partnerships. Yeah. And that's what makes a great defensive line. It's no good just having one great defender uh, and the person next to him can't do the job. The great, for me, whenever I think of great defenders, I can always remember who they play next to. Yeah, um, And I think that um, the way that um, Monaco set up in midfield, um, forget what happened in the, the Coupe de France. They, they are young. They'll learn from that, I think. But generally, the, I just love the way they set up because Chumania as well, they, 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 they don't just defend. They're also part of the attack. There's, there's this fluidity about Monaco that I like and they're, they're very much at the heart of it. So I must admit, maybe it's because I've seen them live. That also might also have something to do with it. Um, I think if I was probably to see uh, Burak Yilmaz live, I might change my mind because you, you feel it differently when you see them live than when you, um, you're watching it on the TV. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that sort of steals one of my other questions, which was um, one one young player that you've watched that you think is destined for stardom, because I'm guessing that's probably going to be one of those two again. Uh, no, Jeremy Doku. Okay, interesting. Yeah, he... I love Jeremy Doku. I had a conversation with this with Jeremy the other day. Um, I think he's fantastic. Uh, I think he's a bit raw. Um, and as um, Jez said on Twitter the other day, he needs to make the right decisions sometimes. Um, but I think he makes the right decisions enough to suggest that he could be really, really amazing. Mm. I, I, I think he has a, an end product enough of the time to suggest that he will learn the other half. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think a lot of players go through their whole careers who can dribble everybody and never get that end product. Yeah. yeah. At least not, not enough. As, a, as an Arsenal fan watching Theo Walcott for a number of years, I can attest to that one. Um, That's of course, how the conversation started. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and of course, the answer you've given is incorrect. The answer you were, you were looking for was Terra Moffi, but we'll move on. Um, <laughs> at, at Sar, I think. Oh, I knew uh, that. I, was... I can't deny that Terra Moffi, but then, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many, isn't there? Like you say, the but League of me, Talent. Then I'll, I'll raise you uh, Loriente. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. He's he's definitely coming. We're going to go down that road. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. Fair point indeed. Um, One of the best free kicks that we've seen in recent years. Oh, that was I mean that was just outrageous. I still can't <laughs> get my head around how that went in the net. Um, favorite commentator to work alongside, or I'll caveat this: the one you've learnt the most from. It's funny because we don't work alongside commentators at, um, for the, the, the league hour, so it's uh, really difficult to say there. Uh, so I've got to go back further, I guess. Um, somebody I've worked alongside. 
who I learned an awful lot from. Um, I've got to go back about a decade. Um, okay. It's one of the people that um, I learned an awful lot from um, was a commentator at Eurosport when we did the Bundesliga. And he was a lot younger than me, which was the surprise thing. And his name was Stuart Telford. And um, he had his coaching badges. And when I commentated alongside him, you could see the coach's brain coming through. Um, so I, I learned an awful lot from him. But the co- I have to say, the commentators I've learned most from are more the ones I've watched. Yes. Um, because they've been a lot further he- ahead in their careers. Um, um, when we were doing the Bundesliga, um, we started in 2009. Uh, we all sort of started then. I mean, I, I, I had a, a bit of football reporting experience and I'd done the Champions League for um, various different, uh, um, for African television uh, for a while. Um, so in some senses, I was one of the more experienced in terms of it there. So I, I, was, I, I come back to people the likes of, you know, like I say with Barry Davis. Uh, Barry Davis is one of the, probably one of the reasons why I, I try not to say, I try not to talk all the time during games, uh, because I think it can be quite tiring for a viewer if all they've got is non-stop talking. Yeah. And sometimes you just need to back off and allow, and I think that's the biggest lesson I learned. Uh, the other one, I mean, there are there are lots of commentators I like now, like Derek Ray, I think he's great. Uh, yeah. Kevin Hatchard, really good. Phil Bonney, who is possibly the most enthusiastic commentator I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but he still manages to keep a journalistic lid on it. And I, I, li- I like listening to them. Um, and I think they, they bring an awful lot of um, nous to, to the industry. I, yeah. I, a lot of the, the people I work with at Ligue 1, uh, you know, uh, in being sport, who do the world feed. Um, it's a great team, I think, of um, commentators there, who I, I, I defy anybody outside of you two that know more about French football than they do. <laughs> you know they uh you listen to their podcast and it comes out every blooming week yeah you know some of the random stuff they pull out is just phenomenal from but they've been doing it now for 10 years more you know and you know matt and robbie uh, yeah. have been doing it for for longer yeah uh, and it's um you know it's it, i always try and learn from them to be quite honest with you i don't yeah. think you should ever stop learning you know you should um you should always try to to find better ways of doing things, even if you go um, back to other things of commentators that you don't like, mm. you know, you can learn from them too. In yeah. terms of what you don't want to do. Yeah, <laughs> don't, wor- don't worry, we won't ask you to name those. <laughs> I wouldn't ask you if you did. So I mean, uh, you know, that's not fair because the thing is, as well as I don't think there are really there are not many what I would call bad commentators. You might not like a commentator, but that doesn't mean they're bad. That just means you don't like their style. Yeah. But there are lots of other people out there who will. So it's a it's a question of, you know, style. Uh, you, you you research your games. Everybody does. That's what I can't stand most is if I hear that something that hasn't been researched, that winds me up. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm not saying you need to know everything, but there are certain things, you know, is is as I say, you know, if you don't prepare for your games, then you are going to have a nightmare. Yeah, the, the one that comes up with our podcast time and time again is yeah. we just get a little bit bored of the Farmers League um, thrown around. We, Jez and I are on a one-man uh, sort of salvo to try and rid the, uh, the the social media world of the Farmers tag. But, yeah, but the trouble is everybody who says Farmers League is not interested in, in a rational conversation back. So, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's almost pointless. Yeah, yeah, couldn't no? agree more. And I, 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 I think that the, um, the current crop that this Farmers League has come up with this season has been top-notch. Yeah, so, I mean, we're ploughing well. Good yeah, absolutely. This is, this, is proper, this is proper organic farming going on this year. <laughs> going to steal that line for sure. Uh, Jez, any final questions for yourself? Uh, no, I don't think so. Fantastic. Well, um, Angus, it's been a pleasure. Genuinely, I think uh, when I reached out to you, um, you know, you know what it's like when when you're just a humble, uh, strange looking chap like me, when you reach out to people, you, you never know quite what, res- what response you're going to get. But you've been a, an absolute gent in, in giving us your time this evening. And, and it's been fascinating, really, just to learn 
the bits bits and bobs about the commentary and and your passion comes across in your comms and uh i've i've, I've been a fan for a long time and and i'm sure uh, our listeners will have appreciated it so uh, i just want to thank you very much for your time and uh, i'm sure we'll be hearing plenty more from you in the future thank you very much indeed and also keep up the good work that you guys do as well uh, i've only just found you chris but i've been following jez for a long time and uh, i enjoy his stuff well, Je- Jez is the brains of the operation. I just uh, I just host and, uh, and, and generally whinge about things. No, I'm, I'm I'm learning from Jez every week. We do things, but yeah, I've been been with the crew for about a year year and a half or so now, and uh, yeah, we're, French football is definitely our thing. So um, we we definitely love to have have you back on again, and and uh, and more people like you. So thank you ever so much. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care of yourselves. Good stuff. Uh, Jess, thank you for your time as well this evening. Much appreciated. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next Tuesday to, well, Monday or Tuesday to uh, to round up the League on Action. And we will know, finally, who's going to win that title. And we'll also be able to serenade the wonderful achievement of Lorian staying up and whoever, whoever else goes into the playoffs. I don't care who. So uh, until then, enjoy your French football. Thanks again to Angus. And we'll speak to you all very soon.